So Philippians 1, and we're starting at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. I want to talk about a discovery that I made by grace in the Word of God 50 years ago in the fall of 1968. I can date it, the the three months or so during which I passed from ignorance into knowledge concerning things that have shaped everything in my life. The discovery has to do with uh, the glory of God and its massive centrality in the universe and my happiness and its massive power in my heart my desire for it. And the discovery was how they relate to each other and, and how that relationship catapults delighting in God or the enjoyment of God to a place that is so pervasive that it changes everything in life. So that's where we're going. Let me pray. Father, I ask for... Biblical faithfulness, both in what I say and in how I say it, so that what I say really corresponds in truth to the Bible, and how I say it corresponds to the worth of what I say. So come and grant an awakening now in every heart here, because not everyone in this room delights in you more than they delight in this world. And that's what needs to happen. And so I pray for that miracle for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I need to clarify something before I I launch into explaining the discovery and then go to the text that was just read to you and then then go to uh, how it changes everything. Most of you come to this room with preconceptions in your mind and feelings about the word joy or pleasure or happiness or delight or satisfaction, all that cluster of affectional, emotional language has associations for you, some of them positive, some of them negative, and you're all over the map because of your peculiar experiences. So let me give a clarification so that I can at least eliminate some misconceptions of what I mean when I talk about delight in God or joy in God or satisfaction in God. The way to clarify it would be this. The Bible sometimes talks about sorrow and joy as though they were sequential experiences. Like first you have one, and then you have another. And sometimes the Bible talks about them as simultaneous experiences, going on at the very same moment. I'll give you two examples. Psalm 30, verse 5. 
Weeping may tarry for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Everybody gets that, right? Something horrible is going on in your life for a season called night here, and, and you're crying most of the time. And it passes, or it gets fixed, or something happens, and joy returns. Now, that's the sequence. First weeping, then joy. We get that. Everybody understands the difference between crying your eyes out and leaping for joy because something wonderful has happened. However, the Bible also talks about them as simultaneous. For example, 2 Corinthians 6.10, where Paul describes himself as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful and yet unbroken, unbroken, not sequential, unbroken joy. Now, I don't think that's a contradiction because we use language that way, don't we? We all know that sometimes we use the word joy or delight or happiness to describe those bright, cheerful, sunny, smiling expressions of that good feeling. And that's not sorrow. But other times, and you, if you've walked with Jesus a while, you know this. We also talk about the sweet, precious, deep, unshakable satisfaction in your soul through the worst of times. I'll just give you a concrete illustration. When, when I was 28, got the phone call that my mother had been killed in Israel in a bus wreck. My dad was in the hospital. They didn't know if he'd make it. I'd never walked through anything like this before, so I just put down the phone. My little two-year-old Karsten is holding on to my leg like this and saying, Daddy's sad. And I said to Noel, Mama's dead. And daddy might not make it. That's all I know. And I went back to my bedroom and I knelt down and wept for two hours. And I know that during those two hours, there was that in me that was saying, she was awesome. Thank you for my 28 years with this woman. Thank you that she brought me to Jesus. Thank you that she understood when nobody else understood. Thank you that she's in heaven. Thank you that she didn't suffer. It was a brain injury. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There was this, I had never before experienced the simultaneity, simultaneous reality of I've never been more sad in my life. And my delight in God's mercies to me and his rock-solid being there for me and taking her to himself never wavered. That was a gift. So we know this. So when I'm using the word joy, satisfaction, happiness, delight, I'm talking about a kind of spiritual experience that sometimes is bright and cheerful and smiling and laughing and leaping for joy and other times is just the unshakable, sweet, deep satisfaction of soul in God while you are weeping your eyes out. Can you, get, can you handle that? So now, don't make what I say then superficial, okay? Don't hear me in the most superficial way you can imagine delight happiness, joy, satisfaction, and so on. That's my clarification so you know what I mean when I'm using this kind of language. So um, it's 50 years ago, and during uh, I grew up in a Christian home, wonderful Christian home, and never, never uh, turned my back on what my parents taught me and loved them, loved them to this day. Both are in heaven, I believe. And went away to university when I was 18, uh, 700 miles away from my home, and I carried with me a tension that I couldn't figure out. 
And the resolution of the tension was the discovery four years later. But between 18 and 22, I kept trying to figure out. Over here, my dad had taught me, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 10, 31, whatever you do, Johnny, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. This world exists for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. Make God look glorious by the way you live. I said, got that, love that, want to do that. And over here was the real John Piper in his heart craving happiness. I want to be happy. And I could no more turn that off like a spigot. You have that word, spigot? Faucet. I don't know what your words are. This is English. I'm speaking American. I could no more turn that off than I could turn off hunger after skipping 10 meals. It was natural. And I believe now it's God-given. It is not a sin to want to be happy. It's not a sin. And I, I didn't know how these two fit together because I had, it seemed to be in the air that if you did a good deed in any way in pursuit of your happiness, it made the deed defective. It didn't seem to be for God's glory if it was for your happiness. That was the tension I lived with. And I, I couldn't deny this biblically. I couldn't deny this experientially. And therefore, I lived quite torn during my college years. Then, in the fall of 1968, in a class with Daniel Fuller, who introduced me to some writings of C.S. Lewis that I hadn't seen before, and writings of Jonathan Edwards that I hadn't seen before, and his own writings that I hadn't seen before, I saw things that changed everything. So if you have your Bibles still open or open them again to Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, and I'm going to try to show you from a text what I discovered, okay? I don't want you to embrace it because I think it or because it sounds helpful. I want you to embrace it because God said it, okay? So here we are at Philippians 1, and uh, my wording will be a little different here. I'm working from the ESV. Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be exalted, honored, magnified, whatever word, is appropriate. The Greek word is megalunthesitai. You can hear mega in there, right? Big. big. I want Christ to be big. So my eager expectation, my hope, and this is what my dad taught me, right? Johnny, use your body, use your mind to make Jesus look magnificent, to make Jesus look exalted. That's why you're on the planet. Do that. Yes. And I saw here, okay, that's, that's Paul's eager expectation and hope. I want in my body for Jesus to be exalted. So that means I want to live, I want to use my hands and my legs and my eyes and my mouth. I want to do everything with my body so that Jesus looks great. And people want Jesus because I'm alive. Surely that's, that's what he's talking about. So my question then became, as you can imagine, okay, How does that relate to Paul's happiness, satisfaction, joy, delight? Now, watch the logic. I had never, I mean, I grew up in a very biblically saturated home, and yet somehow had not been taught to follow the logic of passages. For me, Bible verses were like pearls on a chain. Like, here's a pearl, and here's a pearl, and these pearls are beautiful. I take a pearl with me all day long. I think about the pearl or like a lozenge you put in your mouth, and you suck on it all day long, and you get wonderful sweetness from the verse. I still do that. 
But oh my, what there is to be seen in the Bible when you don't think of Bible phrases in terms of little little pearls or lozenges, but as links in a logical chain that hang together. So the link between 20 and 21, that link is forged with the word for, both in the NIV and the ESV, because it's really there in the Greek. So, he says, I want Christ to be uh, exalted or magnified, honored, made great, made to look magnificent in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that word for and that logical connection changed my life. Let me see if I can help you see what I see. How does that that logic work? Because the word for here is because, right? I'm confident Christ is going to look magnificent in my body because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And notice, to live in verse 21 corresponds back to by life, in verse 20. And to die, in verse 21, corresponds back to by death, in verse 20. So he's, he's giving a double argument. Christ will be magnified in my life, by my life, because to live is Christ. Christ will be magnified by my death, because to die is gain. Got that? Are we, are we together? Now... I paused and looked at the second pair. I want Christ to be magnified in my body by my death. Help me to die in a way that will make Christ look magnificent. And it will happen because for me to die is gain. Now, if if you're out ahead of me in your logic and your thinking, you say, oh, I I think I know where he's going. I I, I think I'm starting to see it. How does that work? I mean, just think it through. How does it work? I'm gonna, I'm gonna make Christ look glorified, honored, exalted, magnificent in my body as I die. How are you gonna do that? What's the basis of that? How does that work? Because to me, to die is gain. Now, there's a missing, there's a missing piece in the argument, and it, and it shows up in the next two verses. Let's keep going. He says, where is it? For me, to die is gain. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Um, If I'm to live in the flesh, verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. All right. Now, if I go back to verse 21 and say, you just said to die is gain. What did you mean? How is it gain? He answers that in verse 23, doesn't he? I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to die, and be with Christ, for that is far better. So what's the gain? With Christ. Far better. Far, far better to be with Christ. So let me paraphrase the the logic now so far. I, I want Christ to be magnified in my body as I die, and that will happen because... For me to die is to experience so much more intimacy and closeness with the all-satisfying Christ that I call it gain, even though I lose everything in this world. Is that a fair paraphrase? And that was it. That was it. Christ is most magnified in my body as I die, when my heart is most satisfied in him as I die. 
That changed everything. And I think that's what it says. The reason I make Christ look great in the hospital bed, my family standing around me, knowing I've got an hour or two before I'm in the presence of Jesus, if at that moment I can exude for them, this is going to be awesome. (laughs) Don't weep for me. You may weep for you. Don't weep for me. Gain, gain, gain. Gain. That would make Jesus look pretty good. I mean, how else are you going to make him look good? If you're not satisfied in him, if you're cleaving to this world, I don't want to lose this family. I don't want to lose this job. I don't want to lose this dream retirement. I don't want to lose this house. I don't want to lose this sexual pleasure I've enjoyed all these years. I don't want to lose anything here. It's so precious to me. Jesus, wait, wait, wait. You're not making Jesus look good. So Christian hedonism is pretty serious business. Oops, I used the word. (laughs) Um, The saying that captures this word I'm not supposed to use is, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And that's my biblical argument for it. The logic between verse 20 and 21 of Philippians 1. Now, if you see that and you believe that, it changes everything. And I've I've got 19 minutes, and I'm going to give you 10 examples, or as many as I can get through in 19 minutes, all right? And when I say everything, this is just 10 but you can you just come up to me and name anything, like television or name anything, and I'll relate it to this and show you how it's changed by it. So here we go. Number one. The whole concept of duty and obedience is changed. Because, well, I'll give you an illustration. I, I was at a conference. In fact, this was in Britain. It was at the FIEC conference ages ago. And I'll even tell you who it was. It was Elizabeth Elliot, because she wouldn't mind. I love Elizabeth Elliot. She's in heaven now. One of my heroes. No nonsense, down to earth, go die for Jesus kind of person. That's the name of her biography of Amy Carmichael, Chance to Die. <laughs> Isn't that an awesome title? A Chance to Die. Let's go. We were sitting on a panel together. And she had heard me talk like this, you know. This is what I say everywhere I go. I'm trying to spread this message all over the world because it's so wonderful. And she said, I'm not sure, John, that you should, you should tell people to pursue joy. I think you should tell them to pursue obedience. <laughs> I said, I, I, said I, I don't think I had the nerve to call her Elizabeth. I forget what I called her, but I said, You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like saying, I don't think you should tell people to pursue apples. You should tell them to pursue fruit. The reason that that doesn't make sense is because apples are fruit. And the pursuit of joy is obedience. (laughs) And the reason it's obedience is because the Bible demands it, right? Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command. Or Psalm 32.11, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. Or Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's a command. So I will not let anybody tell me you should be telling people to pursue obedience, not joy. I say, of course we should pursue obedience. And the central command in the Bible is be happy. It's radical. You go to hell if you don't find happiness in Jesus. 
We're not playing games here. I'm not, it's not like icing on the cake. Like really it's about obedience. Like stay out of bed with your secretary and then you go to heaven. No, you won't. Only if you love Jesus more than sex will you go to heaven. So that's, that's the first radical. It just, it just changes the way you think about obedience. The, the core demand in the Bible, the core demand is um, not just embracing Jesus as Savior or following Jesus as Lord, but treasuring the Savior and treasuring the Lord as if he is your chief delight. I mean, this, this is where I, I hammered on it a few weeks ago at T4G because I knew I was talking to a lot of Southern Baptists there, and I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church and, and, and uh, did not hear the message that delighting in God is essential to your salvation. I'd never heard that from my church. I heard, commit yourself to God, decide for Jesus, follow Jesus. And I realized, now wait a minute, there are all kinds of receivings of a savior when you don't really even like the savior. You just went out of hell. I just want not to go to hell. Jesus the ticket, I'll take the ticket. I'll carry him in my back pocket and then I'll enjoy everything else. He's in my back pocket, he's the ticket, out of hell, amen, give me Jesus, back pocket. That's not salvation. And you might say, receive him as Lord, okay? I'll do what he says. You do what he says. And the whole while, you're begrudging. I don't like what he says, but I do what he says because I don't want to go to hell. That's the atmosphere. That's not Christianity. Christianity is way more radical than that. Your heart must cleave to a savior and cleave to a Lord because you have seen in the savior and seen in the Lord a treasure that is more valuable than anything. That's Christianity. So that's number one. Number two, conversion. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be converted? And this this sight of the glory of God through being happy in God changed everything. Here's Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then... In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. What's the point of that? The kingdom of God has broken into the world in Jesus Christ, all right? He's the king, and the king has come. And this little one-verse parable says, entering the kingdom, belonging to the king, is like finding a treasure hidden in a field. You open it. (laughs) The rules of the land are, you own this land, you have that field. I'm going to get this land at any cost. I'm going to have that field. That field is Jesus and his rule in your life. And how do you get it? Sell everything you have. And I totally, for years, I, I, I missed the phrase, in his joy, he sold everything he had. In his joy, he sold. So like, well, isn't there sacrifice in the Christian life? Yeah, you've got to sell everything. But no, because you're selling it with joy. Because the payoff that you get in Jesus is infinitely better than all your cars and all your books and all your computers and all your hobbies and all your friends and everything else. He's just vastly better. That's why David Livingstone said, I never made a sacrifice. And he lived all that horrible suffering, like I think he suffered from malaria about 40 times in Africa and said, I never made a sacrifice. What in the world? Number three, so that was conversion. So obedience changes, conversion changes because it means uh, finding Jesus as a treasure more satisfying than anything else and you're happily willing to let it go. Number three, faith. What is faith? This is the... I want to write a book about this in 2019, if, if I can find the time, <laughs> if I'm still alive. All of you should be fighting the fight of faith. Paul calls it the good fight of faith, right? 
First Timothy 6.12, the good fight of faith. What is that? What would that fight look like? You get up in the morning, fight the fight of faith. Go to work, fight the fight of faith. Deal with your family, fight the fight of faith. What, what is that? Well, here's what Jesus said about believing faith. I am the bread of life. This is um, uh, John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. See, now you have a, a verb coming, come, comes to me, shall not hunger. And you, you know that's not just a physical coming because Judas came to him, right? Judas came to him physically, hung out with him for three years. That's not, he didn't have faith. Coming to Jesus is a spiritual I'm finding you to be food. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes, there's the word faith in a verb form, who has faith in me shall never thirst. So that's a parallel structure. Comes to me shall never hunger. Believes in me shall never thirst. So how would you define believing in view of that parallel? Who comes never hungers, believes, never thirsts. And I'd paraphrase it like this. Believing in Jesus is a spiritual, a heart coming to him so as to eat and drink to your soul's satisfaction so the world doesn't hold any addictions for you anymore. Something like that. Faith is very, very different than just believing facts or assenting or I remember one time with R.C. Sproul, I was at a conference and he preached on a message on faith and he, he, as an illustration, he put a chair out there, real familiar illustration. He said, I believe that chair will hold me up, believe, right? And he said, but. You don't really believe in it unless you're willing to sit on it. He went over and he sat on the chair. Now you know I believe the chair will hold you up. So I came on and preached after him, and I didn't, I didn't think that was enough. <laughs> is it not good to correct your host, like me telling Richard Koken how to run his church or something like that? But I knew him, and we're friends. So I said, you know, here's the problem with that illustration. There are people who look at that chair and say, that chair will hold me up. There are people, this is Jesus, right? Jesus is the chair. There are people who go over there and sit in that chair. And they think it's an ugly chair. They wouldn't put it in their living room. I said, you, you want to be saved? You got to love the chair. He's watching this on a screen back in the back room. <laughs> and we were sitting on a panel afterwards. And he came out. Everybody's wondering, oh, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? And he comes out on the panel and he leans over and says, John, I love the chair. <laughs> I said, I knew you loved the chair. But, but think about that. In your evangelism, when you're trying to get people to sit in Jesus as their Savior, and their Lord, they got to see the chair is beautiful. They do. They have to. If he's ugly and unattractive and embarrassing, their heart hasn't been changed. They just want out of trouble, out of their addiction or out of their hell or out of their whatever horrible situation. And, and he's the ticket out. That's not, that's not faith. That's number three, faith. Number four, evil. Changes the way you look about, think about evil if you believe that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. Here's a definition of evil from Jeremiah 2.13. I wonder how you would define evil right now. Like, what is the essence of evil in a God-centered universe? Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. This is evil number one. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Evil number two. And have 
hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what's the, what's the definition of evil in that verse? Here's, here's God as a, a fountain of living water. You drink at that fountain, you live forever. You're, you're, it is the sweetest, most satisfying water I was planting some hosta a few days ago. This just comes to my mind here. I love hosta. You can't kill them. You have hosta here? I don't even know. It's a plant. <laughs> and I love it because it, it makes great rows and you can't kill it and you can cut it in half and plant another one and it, it lives. It's just wonderful for a person who kills things. And it was hot as blazes last week in Minneapolis. And I mean, it was 97 degrees Fahrenheit and I was sweating, and John, um, from across the street, John Erickson came over to help me, and, and about halfway through, about two hours into it, we were finishing up putting some red chips on the, on the garden and, and uh, planting these hosta, and I went over to the hose and turned on the spigot and, and let the hose run till the water's cool, and I was like, and then I began to drink, and I, I turned to John and I said, you know why people don't enjoy Jesus? He's like, no. I said, they're not thirsty. I said, this is glorious. This water is glorious. Because I am so hot, sweaty, and thirsty. Evil is tasting it and saying, bleh. Then going over and picking up a handful of dirt and saying, that's evil. And that's what everybody does in the world until God is their treasure. God is their food. God is their drink. So evangelism should be the easiest thing in the world. Don't eat dirt. Stop eating dirt. It will make you sick forever. However, Satan has connived to so make the dirt tasty and so make the soul hungry for dirt that people need help. They need a divine miracle to recognize this water will satisfy forever. That dirt will kill me. That's our job. Help people recognize that. Number five. So that was evil. How evil is transformed. How you think about evil. Evil is turning away from the infinitely satisfying God to things that can never satisfy and will kill you in the end. That's evil. Number five, self-denial. Now, this is important because a lot of people will say to me, uh, Piper, your Christian hedonism is unbiblical. I was talking with Richard about this just the other day, this morning, I guess. That there's a, there's a guy who, who handed out leaflets at, at the thing yesterday because he doesn't like my theology. Like, whoa, really? What? Well, that's not a surprise to me. But the, the, the problem was Piper is lopsided, right? He goes around telling people to seek happiness in Jesus when the Bible says, he who would be my disciple, let him come after me, take up his cross, and follow me. And Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And here's Piper going all over else. Come be happy, come be happy, come be happy. Now, I, can, I get it why people think that's lopsided, unbiblical, skewed. So at this moment in the sermon, I'm fixing this, all right? <laughs> Do I believe in self-denial? Well, I've already said, sell everything you have. I've already said, dying is gain. So why wouldn't you want to die for Jesus? Now, most of the world would look at selling everything and dying as self-denial. And it is. But it is not ultimate self-denial. Ultimate self-denial is heresy. Meaning, if you go to heaven and God stretches out his arms... I just read an article at DG this morning where Greg Morse is writing about the father welcoming the prodigal home. And I got teary-eyed. I said, I just want to do this with my boys so bad. 
And God welcomes, welcomes you in if you push him away and say, no, 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 I, I don't need any of that because I'm supposed to deny myself. That's heresy. That's wicked. So what I would say to the person who's using Mark 8, 34 to criticize me, namely, he who would be my disciple must take up his cross, which means suffer and die and follow me. All I say to that person is, Read the next verse. What's the argument? Argument. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What's the argument? You want to save your life, don't you? Yes, so lose it. Of course I believe in self-denial because I believe in salvation. I want to be with God. I want to be with Jesus. I want to maximize my soul satisfaction forever. And the only way is to die with him, suffer with him, walk with him. So, at any given moment, John Piper may be lopsided. God will judge whether if you take the 50 books and the 50 years of ministry and read it all and look at it all and watch it all and say, way lopsided, or maybe not. It's not for me to judge. Do the best you can. Number six, we're not going to get through all 10. I might just mention them. Money and giving. Acts 20, 35 It is more blessed to give than to receive. Amazing. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whoa. Well, if you love a cheerful giver, how do you feel about the begrudging giver? Whatever, it's not good. So what's the meaning? Giving is not a virtue in and of itself, right? I love a cheerful giver. I don't feel the same way about a begrudging giver, which means that at the moment when you're giving to the church, giving to commission, giving to your favorite charity, at that moment, you got an issue right here. This is not the virtue. This is the virtue. How you do it, The spirit from which you do it is what God is watching. That's why this woman who gave two pennies gave more than everybody. She found so much contentment in God, she gave her last two pennies, and Jesus said, that was more than everybody gave. What in the world did that mean? It meant God was watching this, not not this. So it changes how you think about money and how you think about giving. It changes worship. Corporate worship, what a killer of corporate worship if the people don't know that God is glorified in them when they are satisfied in him. And what a freeing thing to invite people week after week into an assembly where they know the expectation is God will look great here if you are thrilled with him. So that the goal of the worship leader is your job. The goal of the worship leader and the goal of the preacher is to spread a feast. A feast of lyrics in the song. A feast of truth in the sermon. And musical manifestations that give you the opportunity to release what God is doing. That's what corporate worship becomes. Because you know emotion is not optional. It's essential. I mean, there are whole movements of Christianity that are suspicious of emotion. And here's John Piper saying, no emotion, no worship. Yes, indeed, that's what I say. God is most glorified on Sunday morning when the people's singing, praying, responding reflects most satisfaction in him. Uh... Disability and weakness. Every church should care deeply about the 
the, the broken emotionally, the broken physically, the broken relationally, those who were born that way, those who became that way through accident, those who became that way through all kinds of difficulties. Every church should have a heart for the broken and the disabled. And Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Yesterday, I, was, I, I preached four times. I'm preaching once today. What a, what a breeze, right? <laughs> breeze, that's... <laughs> um, so, uh, in the middle of the day, I preached three times. I'm sitting there in the back room waiting to do it one last time and just pleading with the Lord because I didn't bring any energy drink. I had to depend on God. <laughs> and I, and, and, and he, he just reminded me, look, weakling, look, tired old man. You're, just, you're about to go out there and say God loves to be at a disadvantage in order to show his power. You are at a disadvantage right now because you're old and you're tired. So what? Go do it. I'll get the glory. And here's what Paul says. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's what we want, right? Power. Show your, your power. I want to magnify you. How do you do that? Here's his answer. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The weakest people in our church... And that's all of us in one sense. The weakest people in our church have a glorious opportunity to magnify the all-sufficiency of Christ in themselves and those who care for them. Uh, I'll just mention the last two because we're out of time. And uh, easy to sum it up. Love. Love is changed. Ministry is changed. Those are my last two. Nine, love. Ten, ministry. What is love? And I mean horizontal love. What is love to people? Because a lot of people say, okay, Piper, what, what you're going to create is a bunch of Buddha-like people cross-legged in the middle of the field being happy with God while the world goes to hell. I said, I don't think so. I don't think so. That's not the way satisfaction in God works. And I'll read you the most precious verse in the Bible on this for me. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, there, he's talking about the Macedonian Christians, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So if I ask you, Where did this act of love called generosity come from? Paul's answer is, their abundance of joy in extreme poverty, so their joy wasn't in their stuff, overflowed. So here's my definition of love among people. Love is the overflow of satisfaction in God that meets the needs of others at any cost to ourselves. Love is the overflow, or you could say the expansion of joy in God to include others in it, in the joy, at any cost to ourselves. I'll die to make my joy bigger through your sharing my joy. It does not produce... This view of joy does not produce isolated individuals, happy in God, uncaring for other people. It does not. I've never seen it do that. All over the world where people are taken by this vision, they're freed to give their lives away for other people. Lastly, ministry, and good way to end because um, you're all... You're all moving into new phases in this church. Some great things are in front of you. And um, every time there's a building program, every time there's a new structural change and vision that's good for growth, 
The threat is always there. Are we going to lose sight of the essence and core of what it means to be a Christian? What are we inviting people to? We're not inviting people to a new building. We are not. Who cares, right? No. We're, what are we inviting people to? This is 2 Corinthians 1.24. Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. So here's the Apostle Paul defining his role as a minister. I'm not trying to lord it over your faith. This is what I would say to you right now. I didn't come to London to lord it over the men's convention or to lord it over you. I don't, I don't, give, I don't, want, to, I don't want to be your lord. I want to work with you for your joy. Isn't that an amazing way to define your life or your ministry, Richard? He, he, that team, that eldership, that pastoral team should think we are workers with this people for your deepest, longest joy. Because that's what's going to free you to make a difference in this, in this city. One more illustration of that from Philippians 125. I know, he says, remember when Paul said, I don't know whether I'm going to die, I don't know whether I'm going to live. To die would be great. To live would be what? What would to live be? Verse 25 of Philippians 1. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That's literal translation. Joy of faith, which paraphrase goes like this. I believe I will not get to go to heaven right now for my deepest, longest, fullest satisfaction, but I will stay here for the satisfaction of expanding your joy. <laughs> what a deal. Die, gain, stay, more joy for other people through your expanded joy. Let's pray. So, Father, take this people, take this church, take commission, and grant that uh, London would reverberate with the truth that God is most glorified in us. You are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. Work that miracle, I pray, here, and then influence millions, I pray, around the world through Christ. Amen.